Hello and welcome to Aspects of History. I'm Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. If you're new to Aspects of History, we're a magazine and website dedicated to history and historical fiction. Head over to aspectsofhistory.com where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories and they're all absolutely free. Our magazine is at the insanely cheap price of under a tenner for a year's subscription and that's under a tenner in American as well. Anyway, on to the podcast. If you enjoy it, please give it a great rating. It'll help us carry on running them. This is the second part in our discussion with Roger Morehouse, the author of First to Fight, the account of the invasion of Poland in 1939. If you've started with this episode, I'd recommend you stop and go back to number one and listen to that, where we discuss the opening shots of World War II. For the rest of you, welcome back. If you enjoy our discussion, please give us a good rating. So you've mentioned this, and it's one of the uh, the outstanding images of the the war in Poland, the the um, invasion of Poland, which is the the cavalry against tanks. Mm-hmm. But as as you've as you've um, well, you've exploded this myth really in the book because it's it, it is propaganda. Yeah, propaganda. Well, it's, I, I certainly think you did because it is it comes across. This is propaganda from the Germans. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I, I think it would be great to hear a little bit about that. I mean, I, yeah. they, they had some major successes against the uh, the Germans. The yeah, um, the German sort of propaganda um, image or stereotype that they gave, both for a domestic and an international audience, and of course for all the sort of you know pseudo memoirs that came out in the years that followed about the Polish campaign, was that the you know the Poles attacked, uh, you know, the the, the the Poles were all on horseback. Um, or infantry and the Germans are all in tanks, right? That's the kind of the stereotype image that they gave. So the Germans are always pictured, you know, blonde, chiseled, cheekboned young men riding atop um, German panzers or in aircraft. Um, and the Poles are always, you know, rather sort of unshaven and shoddy looking and usually prisoners, but they're certainly not in tanks and aircraft. And so that's the kind of stereotype that they gave. Um, and of course, you bear, have to bear in mind that, the, you know, the, the Germans have more cavalry in 1939 than the Poles do. Uh, so the Germans have more of everything. So it's not like, you know, the, the Germans have are all in tanks and the Poles are all on, on horseback. That's just nonsense. Um, but the, the, the Polish cavalry was um, actually quite effective. Um, it was certainly the, it was the creme de la creme of, you know, of the, of the Polish army at the time. Very well trained. Um, they fought dismounted, so they didn't tend. They didn't do. They're still. They're not sort of carrying the lance or anything like that. This is not like a Napoleonic cavalry, um, which is, I think, the image that people still tend to have. Um, they fought dismounted. They used to. They used to sort of tow these small artillery pieces with them. They had anti anti tank rifles, which were very effective in 1939, um, and they used to sort of use them. Use the horse itself for, as for mobility and get themselves into position. Then the horses would be taken away. Um, taken to the rear and it actually worked quite well and there's a very good example from the, the first day of the war um, the battle of Mokra which is right down in the southwest near the Silesian border and that's where the the German fourth panzer army is attacking um, and at Mokra they, they managed to sort of maneuver the Germans into this sort of cul-de-sac by, by sort of funneling them in between trees and so on um, and there I think it was the Volhynian cavalry brigade it was um, actually held the Germans off for, for most of that first day, the 1st of September. They, they held them off in a sort of pitch battle. And this is, it is tanks against, you know, 
uh, cavalrymen. It's not cavalrymen on horseback. They're just mounted and they're fighting with their artillery pieces and everything else. But, you know, they do hold them off, which is quite a remarkable feat. Now, bear in mind, this is a cavalry brigade holding back a panzer division, right? This is not how, yeah. this is not how um, uh, military history is supposed to work. That should be a walkover. Uh, and they held them back and they withdrew under cover of darkness and, you know, established new defensive lines and so on. But so that, that I think, needs to be counted as a Polish success, Mokra. And there are other examples as well. And actually, they, where the cavalry had the chance, you know, if they were faced by, by infantry, um, they could still do a, a traditional cavalry charge. And that could be tremendously effective against infantry. And the Germans were terrified of that because a couple of examples where, you know, Guderian would go, there's one, Guderian talks about this, he goes to the front and the rumour suddenly goes around that the Polish cavalry is coming and all these German infantrymen start turning around and running. I mean, this is not the sort of standard image that, that we have at the September campaign. So we have to a little bit rewrite that and get away from these sort of rather simplistic images of, uh, of cavalrymen, you know, foolishly charging German tanks because it didn't happen, first of all. And secondarily, this is pure, this is pure Nazi propaganda. So the fact that we're still <clears throat> having to sort of um, bat away these rather ridiculous stories 80 years on is, is, is rather preposterous. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so, so compounding, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a tragic story because compounding the, 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 the Nazi invasion we have on the 17th of September, the, the Soviets invade. But that's, that, that invasion is, it, was, it's, it, it comes across very differently to the German invasion in that mm. many of the Soviets themselves seem a bit confused by, yeah. by their invasion. Um, yeah. yeah, and the Poles too. I mean, could you yeah, talk absolutely. about that? Yeah. Well, that's and that's entirely deliberate. Um, you know, this is this is the Soviet method of warfare, and it's and it's largely unchanged, really. I mean, go run it runs all the way through into um, you know to Putin's Russia. You look at how how uh, the Russian army, you know, has dealt with and is dealing currently with its um, invasion of Ukraine, mm. its forces in eastern Ukraine was done largely in the same way. It's always sort of denying that we're there at all. We're not there at all. These are these are sort of locals, they're irregulars, they're, you know, uh, there are soldiers on holiday or whatever they describe them as. Um, and that's very much the same, you know, the same playbook is being played out in 1939. Um, the Soviet invasion is on the at dawn on the 17th of September. And actually the, you know, the Germans have been in touch with the, with the Soviets. I mean, this is something that I, I I write in quite some detail how that the contact between Berlin and Moscow had sort of played out in in the intervening couple of weeks because the the Germans are basically saying to the saying to the Soviets all the way through well you know when are you when are you coming in when are you joining this enterprise because that's how they imagined it would be um, so the current narrative as you as you can see told by you know sort of Soviet uh, Russian sympathisers and and uh, you know the Russian um, um, foreign ministry and so on. They'll say, well, you know, um, the the, the uh, Soviet forces only entered Poland once the government collapsed, and they were welcomed by the local people. And it was it was kind of a humanitarian operation. That's how they portray it, and that's how they portrayed it at the time. That was the narrative. Um, when you look at original sources, and that, and that was deliberate. I mean, they they wanted to basically kind of essentially creep in. 
so that the Germans take all the blame for the invasion of Poland, that they can present a narrative to the world that is basically, we are not aggressors, we are just sort of, you know, carrying out a humanitarian stroke police operation in these territories that are next to our frontier. Um, so, that, so that Stalin can basically preserve his sort of precious supposed neutrality in World War II. Um, but, you know, let's not mistake this. The Soviet Union under Stalin between 39 and 41 is essentially Hitler's ally. And a more important ally, arguably, than anyone else was, you know, including Mussolini. Um, so there's trade deals between the two. There's sort of, you know, um, uh, uh, military envoys are exchanged and um, trade envoys are exchanged and so on. So there's all sorts of high level contacts between the two. So they are allies in all but name for that 22 months, which we forget. So when the Soviet army um, rolls into um, eastern Poland, they are it is very obviously an invasion. And you can look at the orders. I quote the, the orders uh, to the troops on the ground, which basically talks about, you know, um, um, using a light lightning war. So swift moving, um, uh, um, um, swift moving units to basically sort of, you know, target particular strongholds, target particular sites, particular buildings, particular um, uh, cities and so on. Um, it's very obviously a military invasion. There's nothing really humanitarian about it. That's that's eyewash. Um, so again, that's another myth that still persists right up to, to up to 2021 uh, and needs to be um, needs to be battered away as well. We need to get rid of the idea that this wasn't a, wasn't an invasion because it obviously was. Um, the war that said, the warfare that results is actually rather different, partly because the poles in the east. Um, are very limited in number, so they're mainly just border troops who don't have, you know, any air cover. They don't have artillery even, so they're merely infantrymen or policemen, effectively. Um, so in some places they 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 fight back, and in many places they realise that it's foolish to fight back, so they simply retreat. And in many cases they are fooled into uh, surrendering, or basically they they imagine that and they're told that, you know, that the the forces that are coming to meet them are are coming to to join the fight against the Germans, and this was a deliberate tactic. So I come back to the, you know, this idea of um, you know desinformatia and and uh, you know, disinformation, which is an old old Soviet trick. Um, so Polish forces are really you know have no chance against the Red Army in 1939, but they they are still tricked into not fighting to a large extent. Um, because the Soviets come in with this narrative that we are coming to help you, um, and nothing to fear. We are your fray. We are your Slavic brothers. We're coming to help you against the dastardly Germans. And as soon as they, um, you know, arrive at, the, you know, whatever it is, the barracks or whatever, uh, soldiers are disarmed, and that's that. And then they're, they're sorted between um, officers and men, and the officers very often are taken off and shot by the Soviets. So it's a really a thoroughly dastardly campaign. Um, just as the Germans are effectively carrying out race war in the West, so the, the Soviets are carrying out class war in the East. So what was interesting, and I guess this is the nature of um, Poland itself, in that it has a number of ethnic nationalities, non-Polish, yeah. um, as it were, um, ethnic Belarusian, Ukrainian, and well, ethnic Germans as well. I mean, mm. how what was their lived experience in Poland leading up to the war? Because that was often used as an excuse yeah. for, for both sides to uh, invade. 
Yeah, it wasn't great. I mean, uh, you know, Poland, if you were in somewhere like Warsaw or Krakow in 39, um, you know, you could have been anywhere. It was, it was, you know, as sort of cultured as anywhere else in Europe, arguably. Um, but then it's very, very mixed outside of those areas, very, very mixed. And, and it gets worse and worse and more primitive the further east you go. So the eastern um, sort of counties, the Kresy, as it's known, those eastern territories are, you know, are pretty primitive, really. Uh, economically and socially and so on and you tend to have you know the, the sort of upper echelons the merchants the administrative class tended to be polish or jewish um and then you're and that they're, they're in a mass of you know essentially you know, Belarusian in the north or ukrainian in the south uh, sort of laborers and peasants so um sort of islands of polishness in a in a sort of ukrainian and and uh, Belarusian sea really um, and the Belarusians and Ukrainians, they're not, it's not like they're sort of persecuted in a, in a real material way, but there's sort of, there's sort of low level prejudice against them. Um, essentially, it's the same thing as, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of what, what we'd now call Orientalism, that the Poles to some extent looked down on the, on the Ukrainians and the Belarusians as, as rather, you know, less, rather more primitive and less civilized than they were. Um, so that, it didn't mean they necessarily put them in camps or anything like that, but they were sort of, you know, low level, low level uh, prejudice against them. So it wasn't a great place to be if you're a Ukrainian or, or Belarusian uh, peasant. But then, of course, you know, as soon as the Red Army marches in and starts proclaiming sort of brotherhood of all nationalities and, you know, the union of all Belarusians and union of all Ukrainians and all of that, that's quite a seductive message, both on, both on a national level, but also um on a social and political level class level um so a lot of those ukrainians and belarusians in poland sort of welcome the um the red army the poles themselves of course don't they they um pretty pretty swiftly realize that this is a a, a, a hostile operation uh, but they are welcomed to some extent by ukrainian belarusian uh, elements of those populations yes uh, so the suffering of the Polish during the war, it's difficult to find another country that suffered more. Um, yeah. The, the, both sides, Nazis and Soviets, that there are there are numerous accounts in your book of, of executions and, and, and other such atrocities. Could you yeah. talk a little, little bit about that? Yeah, um, as I've said, you know, very simply, the Germans come in in the West with... Um, essentially a racial agenda. And this is something I think we kind of ignore to some extent. Um, I think there's a, the Western narrative of World War II really, um, it doesn't really get going with sort of Nazi atrocities really until 41. Um, that, that's the stereotype. Um, really the invasion of the Soviet Union. Then we have this, you know, the opening of the, you know, the Holocaust by bullets, as it's known, the Einsatzgruppe and so on. Um, and that's where you, you see this sort of galloping barbarization of warfare. Uh, and the assumption that's often made in that Western narrative is that everything up until 1941 was all pretty much fine and dandy and fairly chivalrous because the Western experience was fairly chivalrous. So, you know, the French campaign was relatively chivalrous. Of course, you know, the British and the French lost badly, um, but there weren't too many atrocities in the French campaign. And same, same with North Africa. The North Africa campaign was relatively clean mainly because the SS wasn't there. Um, so you now in France, in France uh, and Belgium in 1940, for example, there are something like 20 odd massacres carried out of mainly of POWs, mainly of French colonial POWs. 
Uh, so black prisoners who obviously excite the ire of the SS on racial grounds. And they're, they're very often, you know, routinely taken to the rear and shot. Uh, and then a couple of, you know, quite famous massacres of British troops at Paradis and Bormhout, for example, which are well known in 1940. Um, so there's about 20 odd massacres in a six week campaign. And if you compare that to the number of massacres that we know about, it, by, carried out by the Germans alone in Poland, uh, only eight months earlier, in September 39, over a similar, similar period, five weeks versus six weeks, um, we know about, you know, there are over 600 massacres carried out by the Germans in that period. And that, that statistic alone speaks volumes, because all of the other possible contributory factors are the same. So, you know, you could argue, well, it was, you know, it was Blitzkrieg and Blitzkrieg kind of, you know, the intention of Blitzkrieg is to sort of break, fracture the front line so that troops don't know what they're doing and who's behind them and who's in front of them, um, which means that civilians inevitably get caught in the in the crossfire and in the, in the, in the mix. And that's, you know, bad for them. And they tend to get, um, you know, caught, caught in the crossfire and so on. Um, you could argue that the troops are green and they're a bit, um, you know, German troops are a bit green and a bit nervous, a bit trigger happy. You could say that. Um, but so all of that, all of, all of those factors apply in France as much as they apply in Poland in 39. The difference um, is how the Germans view their enemy. And they view the French and the British essentially as fellow civilized nations. They view the Poles as fundamentally expendable, racial trash, people who are, you know, a nationality that's not only has the, the gall to resist the German advance, but also worse than that is, you know, thoroughly sort of infected with Jewishness, it has this large Jewish population, which, you know, taints the rest of the population. So from the Nazi perspective, the Poles, there's nothing to, worth saving in Poland. So if you if you happen to, you know, walk past a, a, the basement of a burning building and you know that there are children and women and children in that basement who are cowering from your advance, you know, you'd throw a couple of hand grenades in there. It doesn't matter. It fundamentally did not matter. No one was, no German soldier was going to be prosecuted for um, for shooting a couple of civilians or, or throwing that, that hand grenade in a basement. Um so there's a fundamental difference in the attitude of German troops. And that, I think, that explains that, that disparity between the atrocities carried out in the West and, and the atrocities carried out in the East. So the barbarism of warfare that we sometimes say, oh, that, you know, we assume, oh, that just kicks on in 1941. It's right there in 1939. It's right there at the beginning. And it's racially driven. And that's something we have to, we have to remember. And that's, that's a key lesson, I think, that, that the September campaign tells us. It tells us that that barbarism is there right from the beginning. And then added to that, you have the Soviet class-based executions. Um, yeah. I mean, Katyn is probably the most famous example, but um, you know, I was, I was gobsmacked reading the number of um, sm smaller scale, admittedly, yeah. but, but hugely widespread executions yeah. of officers and, and non-commissioned officers. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was routine. Um, the sand, standard routine when they sort of captured um, Polish forces in 1939, uh, the Soviets, was, was that you'd separate the, the ordinary ranks from the officers. Um, the ordinary ranks would be marched off to, you know, some sort of sorting um, uh, establishment. And the officers generally were taken out and shot. Um, and this is class warfare. You know, this is, you know, you can see it 
you can see it later on in the, in the Soviet occupation because there's a deliberate targeting of you know anyone who had you know political links to the old regime, anyone that was a member of the of the you know authorities of the old regime, MPs, doctors, you know priests, any any of those sort of natural elites, if you like, would be targeted by by both sides. Actually, they're both Germans and Soviets in the later occupation of Poland are deliberately targeting. Um, the Polish elites. They want to decapitate Polish society, to, to render it, you know, completely incapable of defending itself. Um, but that, you know, both sides are doing that. I mean, the, the Germans start doing that, that's the, those operations really um, towards the end of the September campaign and into October and, and, and following into 1940. And there are various sites where that's carried out. I mean, one of the most, one of most um, well-known as Palmyra, just outside of Warsaw, which is sort of killing ground where they used to take people from Warsaw. But the German, the, the Soviets are doing that already in 39, and it's routine. You know, this is this is class warfare. Where they were very consciously exporting communism into Poland, and that meant you had to physically get rid of those people that might possibly resist you, which is the officer class, which is the former policemen, you know, which is the administration, which is the school teachers, you know. Knowledge is power, and that's that's something that that, that um, uh, you know, the, the Soviet system wants to get rid of. Well, it's I have one final question really on this. I, it's it's such an extraordinary um, uh, event, really, but uh, but and and such a major one for us in Britain. Uh, it prompted our declaration of war, yeah, um, and it resulted in in these extraordinary events, as as you say. But why do we not know more about it here in this country? You know, the the, yeah. the Polish experience. Uh, it's a very good question. It's one, and it's one that I sort of wrestled with a lot. I think there are, there are many reasons. Um, one one of the reasons I think is that we have traditionally had a sort of um, an academic system. Now, if you look at where you know when the universities are set up, for example, in this country, there's a sort of high preponderance of of German studies. Germany is seen as a sort of a uh, a beacon of uh, you know philosophy and music and culture and all of that, rightly so in the 19th century. So there's lots of um, you know every university founded at the time has an institute of German studies, and to a large extent similar with Russia. Russia is is you know uh, sort of cultured element of Russian history is seen as very significant, rightly so, and that's studied at universities. But Poland, you know, at that time when the universities are being set up, Poland didn't exist. It wasn't on the map. Um, it was it was divided up between the, its three neighbours, Russia, um, Austria, and Prussia, and and uh, uh, and Prussia or Germany. So um, that's I think one reason that there's a sort of a blind spot with 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 Poland. It just it doesn't sort of it doesn't fit. There are other more pressing, more significant, more interesting maybe uh, narratives and and stories to be told from that from that region. So that's a sort of more fundamental reason. Um, and then if you jump forward to a sort of more proximate reason, I suppose the simple answer is, well, you know, the victors tell the history, write the history. Um, nobody had a vested interest in telling the story of the September campaign um, after the war. So obviously the Germans don't. The Germans have, you know, once they start investigating their own past and expiating their crimes from the Second World War, which is well into the sort of late 50s, early 60s, um, they have bigger fish to fry. They have to, they have to get their heads around the Holocaust, for example. So, you know, what they did in Poland is, is kind of irrelevant, doesn't really get talked about. Um, the British and the French have their own narratives of the war. 
which are to some extent, you know, largely self-congratulatory and they put ourselves front centre. Uh, and we don't really talk about elements of the history of the war that, that don't involve us in the first instance. And secondarily, elements of the war in which actually we don't come out looking particularly uh, positive. So that's the reason why we didn't tend to talk about it. The Soviets, of course, were never there. So they, they lied all the way through. They, they lied about the invasion in 1939. Um, and subsequently with communist Poland, there was no, there was no need and no requirement to talk, talk honestly about the September campaign. If anything, they just wanted to damn the, the pre-war, pre-war regime as you know, the, the, the puppet of the Western powers and you know, capitalist and rotten and all of that stuff. So there was there was nobody there effectively to tell the story honestly, um, arguably until 1989-1990, when Poland is finally free of communism, free from the the, the, um, the Soviet regime, um, and then you've got you can have the space for a, you know a generation of Polish historians to actually research and tell the story themselves. But as I said, for the reasons I said at the beginning, those historians and, and researchers generally don't get translated so they don't you know come into the English language it never penetrates the the western narrative so that leaves it for people like me 20 years on or 30 years on to to sort of pull up that material and and process it and go back to the archives and 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 try and prepare that narrative the Polish narrative for a western audience um and if I can start the ball rolling on that then that I think that's a a tremendous success as far as I'm concerned, because the next time that someone writes one of these sort of, you know, synthesis accounts of the, of the Second World War, um, they won't be able, I think, to get away with just, you know, writing a couple of paragraphs or a couple of pages on the September campaign without including a lot of, you know, Polish material, because it's all there now. You can't say that that material wasn't available because I've made a lot of it available in the book. So if that's one result of the book is that it means that, you know, the September campaign gets more than a couple of paragraphs or a couple of paragraphs or a couple of pages, then that, that's got to be seen as a win. Um, and I hope so. Well, I think you've, you've certainly uh, achieved that, Roger. And it's, it's, um, it's an important book. So our listeners need to read it. It's First to Fight. Thank you, in America, in America, it's Poland, 1939. Um, we've got links uh, in, the, in the description. Um, it goes well with Devil's Alliance, the Hitler-Stalin yeah. Pact. Um, I need to read that. I haven't read that. I need to read that. Um, you. Yes. So, Roger, what's next? Um, the next one I'm working on at the moment is um, a book on the Holocaust. It's a sort of rare, a very rare feel-good story from the Holocaust, which is about um, a group called the Wadosh Group, which is a group of diplomats and Jewish activists who were... Uh, systematically forging Latin American passports, um, which were then sort of shipped into the ghettos to try and save Jews from the Holocaust. So, uh, and they, it's estimated that they saved something like 3,000 people uh, in total, which is, you know, twice as many as Schindler, for example. So, uh, and this, is, this isn't known. It's not really known about at all. This would be the first um, book on it uh, in English, certainly. Um, it's a fabulous story, lots of sort of human interest in it. Uh, and as I say, it's a rare a rare feel-good story from a from a very very dark period. Well, that sounds fantastic. Very interesting. Um, and when do you think that's going to be coming out? That should be spring of twenty three. Well, we'll come so back. While yet? This, yeah, I'll put it in the diary now. But uh, excellent, Roger. Thanks so much for talking to us. 
My um, pleasure. And we'll speak to you again soon, hopefully. Thanks, Ollie. I hope you enjoyed that, and thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more, head over to our website, where you'll find articles from Roger on this period and others, as well as links to all his books. We also have numerous contributions from best-selling and acclaimed historians and authors, all available for free at aspectsofhistory.com. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can even email us at history at aspectsofhistory.com. We'll be back soon with another chat, this time with Sarah Grisman. She's the author of a new book, Tudors in Love, and we'll be discussing the passionate lives of Henry VIII, Queen Mary, Elizabeth I, and of course, the one that still excites so much passion today, Anne Boleyn. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.